Well, welcome to the hills. All of you that are online and all of you that are present at our campuses in Keller and West Fort Worth and North Richmond Hills, I think this time next year, I was also going to say welcome to all of you present at our campus in Dallas. Uh, we have a vision. We are asking for nations and generations, and we believe more campuses of our church is a part of that vision. Another part of that vision is planting churches. We hope in five years of this vision to start 15 new churches. We're believing now uh, we can start 17 new churches. One of the churches that in this vision we just helped start is in Connecticut. It's City Coast Church, and even though they've just started, they thought, why not have a baptism Sunday? So they did, and they sent a little video that I was blessed to receive. I thought you would be blessed too. So watch this. We stood on the shores of the Long Island Sound for the first time in July 2020. A friend said to us, can you imagine baptizing people here? And back in those days, we were dreaming about starting a new church for the cities here along the Connecticut coast. Baptism is a symbolic death, burial, and resurrection, and it marks the beginning of a larger story. When people experience renewal, they choose to put to death their old self and enter a new way of living. This beautiful, watery grave tells a dust-to-glory story. No matter who you are, where you've been, and what you've done, when the great news of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection gets into your heart, you respond just like those in the early church. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, anyone and everyone can be freed and forgiven, empowered and equipped. It's been a few years since our feet first hit the sand of the sound, but City Coast Church is here celebrating the first signs of renewal and life change and what we hope are just the opening chapters of a really long history. Let's celebrate that. Isn't that great? Now, on the same side of the country, in the same ocean, a few miles south, uh, we started several years ago a church called Community Church on Long Island, specifically in a town called Babylon. That's right. We have started a church in Babylon. Uh, they're about four years old, and they recently also had a baptism Sunday. I don't have a video, but I do have a picture they sent me. Look at this. They're celebrating 42 baptisms. One of our vision goals in five years is to see 1,825 people baptized into Jesus as they surrender their lives to Him. That's one a day. That's why we're going to have a baptism Sunday in October, and I want you to start praying about that. You hear a lot about vision at our church. We're asking for nations and generations. You see, two things necessary for a church to have a significant kingdom impact. One, a vision must be caught and Second, generosity must be taught. Now, as a young preacher, I did not know to do the first, and I would not do the second. I did not know how important it was to cast vision for a church when I was a young preacher. I did know that dealing with wealth was critical, but I would not talk about it. I allowed what to trump ought. Oh, I know I ought to talk about it. But I was worried what people might think was my agenda if I did. Because I was very aware of the perception in the hearts of many that pastors only talk about money because they have some personal agenda. I know that because of all the jokes I've heard. Did you hear about the lady that went to 
see a pastor at a Presbyterian church. She was not a member there. She went to his office. How can I help you, ma'am? Well, my beloved dog died. Would you preach his funeral? Now, he was very kind. He said, ma'am, I'm sorry for your loss, but I do not do funerals for pets. Maybe you could try the Baptist pastor down the street. He said, I will, but could you help me? Because I don't want to offend him. Would it be appropriate if I offered him $1,000 for this funeral? man said, wait a second, lady. You didn't tell me your dog was a Presbyterian. <laughs> See, I know dozens of jokes like that. And so, I'm not proud of this, but for the first 20 years of my preaching ministry, I hardly ever brought up the subject of what you do with your money. Now, what changed my mind was not a budget shortfall or a capital campaign. What changed my mind was reading the four gospel accounts of the life of Jesus. And I began to realize that Jesus talked about money all the time. Now, he never asked anyone for money, but he was constantly making your money his business because he was on a mission. And the mission was not to make and grow partially committed followers. And more and more I came under conviction, I know it was the Holy Spirit, that if I am going to be faithful to the teachings of Jesus, I had to change my preaching diet. Don't go to a church that will not address money. That church is not using Jesus as the primary source for their teaching material. I am under orders from the Holy Spirit to talk to you about your money. In fact, not talk, but command. So we're in this series, How to Be Good and Rich. And we're using as our text, 1 Timothy 6, 17 through 19. We're going to read it aloud every week because I want these words to be etched into your heart. So I'm going to ask you now to stand at every campus and even online. Last week, I read the words to you. The next three weeks, I want you to read them out loud with me. There's something about saying Scripture out loud that helps us retain it. So read with me, please. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. May the church receive the truth from the Holy Spirit. Have a seat, please. So, we said last time the scriptures affirm three truths about rich people. Number one, God loves rich people. Number two, God saves rich people. Number three, it is hard to save rich people. In fact, Jesus said, it is easier to get a camel through the eye of a needle than it is to give a rich person to completely surrender to God. Now be clear, the Bible does not say it's bad to be rich. The Bible does say most rich people are bad at it. In fact, I've said last time, in over 40 years as a pastor, I have become absolutely convinced 
that prosperity is harder on faith than adversity. I have hundreds of testimonies in my memory banks of people who went through great adversity. And they humbled themselves and they called out to God and they've walked closer to God ever since. I'm still waiting for the testimony of someone that said, it was my receiving great wealth that drove me to to find God. In fact, in the very same chapter that we just read a few verses earlier, Paul wrote these words. People who long to be rich fall into temptation and are trapped by many foolish and harmful desires that plunge them into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And some people craving money have wandered from the true faith and pierced themselves with many sorrows. And let me tell you, Paul's not just making a general observation. Paul was a pastor. And when he wrote those words, he saw faces. He saw faces of people he loved deeply. And he grieved deeply that they used to be serious about Jesus. But they're not now. And when I read those words, I see faces too. Faces of people I went to college with. And I remember in college how much we loved the things of Jesus. But they left that behind a long time ago when they got rich. I see faces of people that used to sit and hear me preach every Sunday. And they've been gone a long time. I see faces. I see faces of people. And the more they acquired wealth, the less they desired God. You know, the greater the mass, the greater the gravitational force. And it seems like the more people amass, the greater the gravitational force to pull them away from the things of God. And that is why Jesus made your money his business. And it may be the most succinct and radical thing he ever said on this topic. In Matthew 6, Jesus said, No one can serve two masters. The person will hate one master and love the other, or will follow one master and refuse to follow the other. You cannot serve both God and worldly Riches. Please notice, Jesus did not say, you cannot serve God and Satan. Because Jesus understands how the enemy operates. And Satan is not going to come after you in a red suit. He is going to come after you with green ink. He is a liar. And the great lie he has sowed is that money is a functional savior. Satan understands people want a sense of identity. They want security. They want a sense of purpose. And the great lie is that money can give you all of that. 
So when Jesus talks about money, he does something pretty radical, something we don't expect. Here's what he says, that God doesn't view money as neutral. He views money as a rival. Jesus does not talk about money like it's just a commodity that needs to be stewarded. He talks about money like it is a seductive power that needs to be subdued. That you cannot enthrone the true God if you are not intentionally dethroning the powers behind the money God. And no, Jesus said, you cannot multitask. Because a lot of us think it's both and. I serve God and money. Jesus said, no, you cannot. He did not say it's inadvisable. He said it's impossible. He did not say you should not do it, you ought not do it. He said you cannot do it. And here's why. Because it is morally impossible for God to accept second place. Because God is who he is, because he's the God we've been singing about today, you will never put a silver medal around God's neck. To do that, God would have to lie about himself, about who he is and what he is due. That's why Jesus said you can't do it, not because you can't try to do it, because God won't accept it. God will never accept a silver medal. This is why when a young man came to Jesus one time who was very wealthy and said, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Jesus knew he was trying. He was multitasking. He was thinking, I can serve God and money. And so Jesus said, get rid of your money. It's in the way of God. He couldn't do it. He walked away, and the important thing is Jesus led him. I wonder if most churches today would. He was a good dude. He was moral. He was kind. I'm sure he was generous. But Jesus let him walk away because Jesus can't lie and say, you know what? I guess I'll settle for some, some of your worship. I'll take second place. And so I told you last week, each week I'll give you a principle from this text. Last week, if you want to be good and rich, you must be humble about your wealth. This week, if you want to be good and rich, you must trust God more than your wealth. This is so hard to do. But again, listen to the scripture. Verse 17, tell them to hope in God, not in their uncertain riches, except reality. Riches are uncertain. You can have dual citizenship. You can't have dual lordship. A follower of Jesus can't have competition for your ultimate hope. Some years ago, I read a book called Second Half by a man named Bob Buford. It was about focusing on finishing strong in the second half of your life. Now, Bob is a Christian. He is rich. He's been successful in the communication industry. And he was seeing a man who was his planner, more than just his financial planner, but kind of his life planner. And this man was not a believer. And he shocked Bob one day. He put a piece of paper on the table and said, Bob, you've got to stop isolating. Sometimes I talk to you and it sounds like 
Christ is most important. Other times I talk to you, it sounds like making money is most important. He drew a box, and on one side of the box, he drew a cross. The other side, he drew a money sign. He said, Bob, I don't care what you put in the box. Just put one of them in the box. This is most important, and I will help you plan the second half of your life. That was a defining moment for Bob. He put a cross in that box. He said, from that day forward, I still made money, but from that day forward, my business was a platform and not an end. And you've got to make the same decision daily. How am I going to dethrone the seductive powers behind the money, God? So that God, the Father, stays where he belongs. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. I'm going to give you a sentence. It's got three parts. It's going to be hard, but it's good. Here's the first part. When we give God our first, let me explain. Put on your seatbelt. I'm about to do some teaching on tithing, which I did not do as a young preacher. And it's a deep regret. I wish I had a do-over. But when I was a young preacher, I never talked about tithing. To be honest, I didn't think anybody would listen. Nobody expected Christians to tithe anymore. It's like the story of the middle-aged couple that came to see their pastor and said, we need you to do us a favor. Our father's older. He's kind of frail. And we just found out he's inherited $50 million from a relative we didn't even know. Well, what's the problem? That's good news. They said, but pastor, we're afraid the shock will give him a heart attack. Would you go tell him you're good with words? So the pastor went to see the old man. He said, what's the most money you ever made in your life? He said, year before I retired, I made $85,000 in one year. Wow, that's great. But what would happen or what would you do if you found out you had $50 million? He said, well, pastor, first thing I'd do is tie it to my church. Well, you guessed it. The pastor went to shock and had a heart attack. And I just expected if I talked about tithing, people would push back. Pastor, we're not under the law anymore. Well, I'm ready for that now. In the first place, tithing preceded the law. When Abraham brought an offering to the priest Melchizedek, he tithed. Genesis 14. I'll have a Bible study with you about whether God's people should tithe, whether they're under the law or not. Besides that, why would anyone under grace want to do less than people did under law? So I'm not here to teach you that you ought to tithe. I'm here to teach you how. Because it's more than just an amount. It's an order. You don't give God first by giving him last. Let me show you what I mean. So God pulls Israel out of Egyptian bondage, and he starts to teach them how they ought to live. Chapter 13 of Exodus. You're to give over to the Lord the first offspring of every womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock belong to the Lord. Chapter 22, you must give me the firstborn of your sons. Chapter 23, bring the best of the first fruits of your soil to the house of the Lord your God. Are you getting the point? Tithing is not about giving God a tenth. Tithing is about giving God the first tenth. Because where you put your first is where you have put your hope. If you get 10 lambs and you give God the 10th one, that is not a tithe. 
You give God the first one because you are believing that God is going to give you more lambs. And when the crop comes in, if you get all the crop in and you fill up your barn and you give God what's left over, even if it's a lot, that is not a tithe. The tithe is you give God the first crops that come in because you've put your hope in God that he is going to give you the rest of the harvest. See, tithing is accepting reality. That God is the source of my blessing. That God is the faithful provider. That God is the reason I do not have to be afraid of the future. And hear this. Because God is who he is. He can only accept the first. Let me show you that. Go all the way back to the start of the Bible. Remember Abel and Cain. And they brought offerings to God. And God did not accept Cain's. And people say, because Cain brought a grain offering. Not an offering of meat. No. God accepted grain offerings. That wasn't the problem. Look at what the scripture says. When it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also brought a gift. The best portions of the firstborn lambs from his flock. The Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. Why? Because Cain brought some And Abel brought first. And God cannot lie and say, I guess I am worthy of some, but not first. That's why I'm about to make a bold statement, but I believe it. If you give God some, if you take care of everything else and give God what's left over, the United States government will give you credit on your tax return. For what you gave. But heaven won't. Now, the money you give can do good. The church can use it to bless people. But there is no record in heaven of people giving God anything. But first, first is not a metaphor, it is a command. When we give God first, next part of the sentence and we give God our best that tithing is about quality as much as quantity that nothing we're going through changes who God is and what he's due that giving should reflect his character not my circumstances so for example there was a time in Israel when uh, financial hardship abounded There was corruption in the priesthood. And some people were thinking, I'm not taking my best to the temple. Not in this kind of circumstance. And here's what God said. Malachi 1. When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hands, says the Lord. Cursed is the chief who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it. But then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty. God says, what you bring to me tells me what you think of me. Why, no matter what you're going through, would you think I'm not first and best? I've told many times a story Paul Harvey told years ago. It was Thanksgiving season, and Butterball Turkey Company got a phone call. And a woman said, would it be okay to cook a turkey that has been in my freezer for over 10 years? 
And the, the person said, well, if it's been frozen all that time, it would be safe to eat it, but it's lost its flavor by now. It wouldn't taste good. And the caller said, that's what I thought. I'll just give it to my church. <laughs> you see, we give our best where we hope the most. You hear what I just said? We give our best where we hope the most. The writer of Proverbs says, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. And then he will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow with good grape juice. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> See, that brings up a point. God wants the best in everything. When you're listening to a preacher, do you give him the best of your attention? When we're singing worship songs, do you give him the best only if it's a song that you like? And what about your holiness? Do you settle for a kind of holiness where you say, well, you know what? I'm holier than most. All right, there's parts of my life where I allow some disobedience or some sin or some filth. But, you know, more than most people, I'm, no, is that what God wants? God wants first. God wants best. And here's why. That's what he gave you. Have you ever thought of Jesus as God's tithe to you? Jesus was heaven's first and heaven's best. Listen to Colossians 1. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. God's whole salvific plan, God's whole idea of how he could bring you and me as rebellious children back into his family demanded that God give up his first and his best. But that's what people in love do. And Jesus knows you can't give your best to two different loves. And so the Holy Spirit says, command the rich to put their hope in God. You see, when you give God our first, and when we give God our best, we are giving God our trust. And trust is God's love language. Because it's been the big question from the beginning, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden. This was the lie the enemy sowed. Is God trustworthy? Can you count on him? Does he want what's best for you, or is he holding out? Is there something or someone more certain than God? And here's the irony. We do believe God's trustworthy in some things. In fact, we're more willing to give God our sins than we are the first and best of our wealth. God, I'm trusting you to take care of my eternity. But I'm not sure you'll come through next year. So I'm going to hold back and take care of that myself. Hmm. Satan will take that arrangement every time. Because 
It leads to people wandering away from the faith. If you want to be good and rich, you must trust God more than your wealth. And you do that by trusting God with your wealth. Jesus said, seek first God's kingdom and what God wants. Then all your other needs will be met as well. You can count on God. And those that are good and rich are certain that God is more certain than their wealth. And by the way, those who are good and poor are too. Not too long ago, I read an article by a theologian who had traveled over to China along with some other believers to visit some of the underground churches there. So they're with this church one Sunday morning, and in their party was a woman who had immigrated from China, lived in California, and spoke the language. And so the church pastor asked, would you bring us a word and tell us about your church in America? So she was glad to tell how she had found a church in America. It was in Los Angeles. People were getting saved. The church was blessing many lives. In fact, to uh, make room for more people, they were raising money to build a bigger building. Oh, the people in China were thrilled to hear this. At the end of the service, the pastor called this woman back up and said, we're so excited to hear what God is doing in Los Angeles. We want to give you our entire offering this morning to take home. And they did. All $140 to go back to Los Angeles to help brothers and sisters erect a church building. And when I read that story, I thought immediately of the Christians in Macedonia. Second Corinthians, Paul said, I'm raising money for poor Jewish believers. And in Macedonia, these people live in poverty. But they begged. They begged to be a part of the offering. Paul said they did more than we had hoped. For their first action was to give themselves to the Lord. You see, what we bestow declares what we believe. There's more truth in that line than you might have realized. What we bestow declares what we believe. Let me put it like this. Judge my theology by my generosity. Judge what I really believe about God. But what I do with my wealth. Because Jesus knows you can have all kinds of orthodoxy in your head and all kinds of idols in your heart. But where we put our wealth is the clearest indicator of where we have put our hope. And that is why Jesus made your money his business. That's why a faithful pastor should too. I promise you, I will finish my preaching career better than I started it. And I will challenge you about what you're doing with all the wealth God has given you. Because I want so desperately to see you finish strong. Completely in love with Jesus. What I do with my wealth.
tells you more than anything else about me what I believe about God. I believe God is rich. I think he's rich in grace and he's rich in mercy. God is just rich in being good. And when we believe that, we will be good and rich. So let's pray. So God, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to take this teaching and cause every listener to receive what they need to receive from it today. Make us more certain than we have ever been, God, that Jesus was telling the truth. We can't serve you and money. Only one gold medal. And give us, God, more courage than we've ever had to choose wisely. Because only one God is eternal. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.